0: Today's attack left over 1,200 dead and more than 2,600 injured in the deadliest attack on civilians in Israel's modern history. Jewish settlements bordering Gaza were among the hardest hit with dozens of families massacred by militants in what some have described as the darkest day in post-Holocaust Jewish history. Around 150 people, including foreigners, have been kidnapped and their fate is uncertain. And while most infiltrators have been neutralized, rockets are still being fired in record numbers. Israel's vowed a strong response, launching attacks on many parts of Gaza, and civilians weren't spared either. As of today, the Palestinian death toll has now risen to 11, 1,100. So is the region on the brink of a full, fully-fledged war? where the security lapses on the Israeli side? And what can be done to de-escalate the situation? Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, back chat on RTHK Radio free. Email us at backchat at rthklihk or, or call us. The number there, 233 88 And around 9.50 this morning, we're going to be looking into new, some new surveys on Hong Kong's, we- oh, Hong Kong's wealth. Our guest for our main topic this morning, we have uh, Shahram Akdaze, who is the uh, Deputy Director of the... Um, Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizen and Globalisation, and the convener of the Middle East Studies Forum at Deakin University in Australia. We have uh, Daniel Marweki, who's a lecturer in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, and a researcher on Israel. And we have James Dorsey. James Dorsey is an adjunct senior fellow and a, a, um, a Middle East specialist at the School of International Studies at Nanyang Technolog- Technological University in Singapore. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Back Chat, uh, Daniel Marweki. Maybe let's go to you first and just, uh, um, just. I mean, we're half, not quite half, we're, we're a long way, obviously, away here um, from um, Israel, and it's very difficult from this distance to understand perhaps just the, um, the huge impact that this has had on just the sort of the way Israelis are thinking, right? Maybe you can sort of put this in, in perspective, just, just how, how, how significant these events were before we go into the details of the response and so on.
1: Sure. Thank you very much and good morning. So as you mentioned, this might very well be the bloodiest day in Jewish history since the Holocaust. And this means that this uh, triggers a response uh, based on that, based on that consciousness that really sort of, you know, unites an otherwise very divided society. So the response will need to be seen in this light. To put it very bluntly, Israel right now in its own eyes is fighting, you know, a reincarnation of, of the Nazis. Right, not saying that's the case, but you know this is what was triggered.
0: I, I so, mean, yeah. they talk about it as sort of Israel's nine eleven, but I mean, proportion. Yeah. I saw it's just statistics. Right, proportionally, if because Israel's population is is, um, is 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 much smaller. I mean, compare it would be equivalent to sort of fifty thousand people dying in the U.S. or something like that. I mean, proportionally, it hits home even harder in Israel than nine eleven did in the U.S. Right?
1: Uh, most certainly does. So everybody knows somebody who knows somebody who died, um, you know, at the very least. So, yeah, and I mean, I think like 9-11 in the US, we, we know what that triggered afterwards, right? Catastrophic wars in the Middle East with huge repercussions. So, as you were also saying um, before, there needs to... Yeah, uh, the, 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 one of the main uh, goals now will to be to contain this conflict because, you know, we, we have war right now. Uh, Hamas will be fought. The question now is one of uh, containment and not having this conflict escalate beyond, you know, um, what it already is.
2: But this, this conflict is one of many that we have seen in the area and this is a continuation and, and, and basically it's a repeat, the numbers are, are greater, um, but this is, this is, is a constant, um, uh, is, it, is, is there going to be a change? Obviously, you think that this is a break and this is going to be an opportunity for, for a, a, a complete change in what happens in the area?
1: Uh, look, as you are saying, this is a long-standing conflict, right? The occupation is long-standing. The situation in Gaza has been untenable for a long time now. So this attack, in a way, shouldn't come as a surprise. Quite frankly, I was, you know, shocked by how by, the, by its brutality. Um, but you know, this comes on the back of a long-standing conflict. Obviously, um, you call it untenable.
2: I mean, the situation is untenable. Yeah. There, you said. That-
1: Absolutely untenable, yes. Uh, and it will become much, much worse. I mean, you have a population of two, two and a half million, half of them children. Um, yeah, as you're saying, something needs to change now. Is obviously, not the time for negotiations. Now is the time of, of war, right? But uh, yeah, nothing. Still, you need national self-determination and equal rights for both Palestinians and Israelis.
0: Okay, let's bring the um, second of our guests. We also have Shah- Shahram ak who's from Deakin University, Australia. Um, good morning. Uh, uh, welcome to Backchat. Um, we, j- just good now, morning. We, just now, um, we are hearing from our guests who shocked by the brutality. I mean, Hamas is, <laughs> well, they, they've always been a militant organisation, but we've never seen them behaving in quite this sort of Islamic Jihad way before, have we?
3: Well, thanks for having me. Um, Yes, it has been uh, quite shocking to watch the news of um, civilians lying in the streets. And um, I was watching an interview, in fact, by Hamas leaders who said that that no one they have killed is civilian Hmm. because they are part of a system of occupation. So that perspective is actually not new, that's been reiterated by other um, Islamist groups who see the whole of Israel as a um, system of occupation, as uh, a system of subjugation of Palestinian and occupier of Palestinian land. So it doesn't really make a distinction between um, the IDF and and civilians. So um, it's shocking to watch, but it does it does make sense in that uh, framework uh, but then at the same, they they took large numbers
0: of hostages but we and they said they were going to kill them we but we we haven't seen any sign of that actually happening have we
3: it is really hard to ascertain uh, about the status of uh, the hostages i think they are Holding on to hostages as a uh, bargaining chip—it's the first time that they have done something like this on such a large scale. But they've done um, it before.
2: I mean, this is—it's a pattern. Uh, holding, holding hostages, training them for uh, for uh, uh, their own—who've been captured and kept on in in Israeli ground.
3: That's right. So the extent of it is quite significant, and it does give Hamas. A bargaining chip in negotiation because it's obvious for all observers that Hamas's military might is not going to withstand the Israeli um, assault and, you know, um, grand, grand, um, uh, ground force attack on Gaza. So uh, they know this is in a way a losing battle, but it does give them some leverage.
0: Let's let explore that a bit further. They know, I mean, and it's utterly predictable that if you launch a terrorist attack like this, Israel will respond in the way that has started and is going to continue. So they, they know this kind of... And they of wanted pres- it. Yeah, well, and that's, that's Paul's question is exactly what I was going to ask. Um, uh, did they do this deliberately to provoke this kind of response from Israel?
3: I think this is an act of desperation, Uh, They're watching the world uh, attention shift away from Palestine. Everyone's focusing on Ukraine and Russia. Uh, They watch the United States talk to Saudi Arabia, UAE, and other Arab states, and uh, negotiating a a normalization of ties with Israel, bypassing the Palestinian issue. So uh, from their point of view, and they see Benjamin... uh, Uh, netanyahu going to the united nations showing a map of israel uh, and completely ignoring existence of palestine on that map
2: so they were very successful uh, they got what they wanted they were very successful the whole world was talking about it
3: exactly that's exactly what it is they're trying to bring attention uh the world attention to the question of palestine yes
2: but they don't offer a solution
3: Well, they are not in a position, they are in a weak spot. If you look at the power parity, the power relationship, they are the weaker player in this uh, game. So they, they are not in a position to offer a solution, but they are in a position to create trouble for the mightier party, for Israel. Okay, let's bring in
0: the uh, third of our guest, uh, James Dorsey. James Dorsey is from uh, the Nanyan Technolog- Technological University in Singapore. Um, good morning, Mr Dorsey. Welcome to Backchat. Good morning. So uh, we've been talking about uh, the initial attack um, and uh, that a reaction is inevitable and that almost inevitably um, Israel is going to go into Gaza, right?
4: I think there's no doubt that Israel is going into Gaza. And I think there's also no doubt that Hamas knew that in advance and in effect wants it to happen.
0: And those of us with very long memories will remember uh, Israel going into Lebanon and getting uh, sort of really bo- terrible things happening there, and Israel getting um, really bog- bogged down there. And uh, Gaza is a uh, crap. T- 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 to maybe explain, well, listen, Gaza is a tiny environment. I mean, it must be the size of a, just part of Hong Kong, right? And it's, in, it's like Hong Kong, it's incredibly packed. It's the worst possible, almost the worst possible place to be fighting, fighting a, a, a conflict to try and root out people who know the environment, surely.
4: I think there are two aspects here. One is, Israel clearly is the militarily superior power, and it may well, in physical terms, win this war. And the question is whether uh, Hamas comes out of this war in existence, and to what degree of existence it comes out of this war. But being militarily powerful, and being able to uh, defeat your enemy doesn't necessarily min- mean that you've won the war. The political fallout will determine that. And I think if you look at um, Lebanon, for example, in 1982, it's not a war that Israel won in political terms. Mm. Uh, there's no question that the uh, uh, if the ground invasion or when the ground invasion happens, it's going to be... Ugly. It's the worst form of warfare that a military can fight.
2: Yeah, no, in, in the domestic in- population. I mean, uh, there's a lot of people living there and trying to live a life. So you're going to go on the street in in, this, in the middle of a, of a domestic area, basically.
4: It's a war that uh, is going to involve house to house combat. Yes, and that is the kind of combat with the highest number of casualties. The question is how the Israelis are going to, at least in the initial phase conduct the ground in, uh, uh, the ground invasion. They essentially have two, uh, two options. One is to do this gradually and probe, uh, circumstances on the ground. And the other is a full invasion. The likelihood, although there are two, there are two theo- military theories, if you wish, that they would come from the South, which would be in some ways easier, but it's also where, uh, Civilians are going to look for shelter or they come from the north, which is the most densely populated area of Gaza. It's also the area with the most tunnels. Uh, And I think there's no doubt that Hamas, like it prepared for the attack on uh, Saturday, will have prepared for that, even if it doesn't expect to, to win the war physically.
2: So you think they're ready with food and supplies and they uh, they got, they got, they got uh, fuel and food stored up?
4: Yeah, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Hmm. I think they are as prepared as they can be. And most importantly at this point, they're prepared in terms of how they expect to respond to the invasion.
0: Okay, we're discussing uh, the events in the Middle East. Uh, there was a terrible attack by Hamas over the weekend um, killed huge numbers of Israelis and the Israeli response, so far an aerial response, but as we're just hearing from our guest um, Israel clearly in, in preparing for a ground invasion of Gaza. Um, if you have any thoughts, uh, do uh, email us at backchat at or you can go to our Facebook page at uh, Backchat on RTHK Radio Free and leave a comment there. Uh, let me bring in a couple of comments from listeners and we'll go back to our guest. Uh, Ilnor says, the key issue at hand is the unresolved matter of Palestinian statehood. The initial objective was to create two distinct and independent states, but unfortunately Palestine never actualized its status as an independent nation state, as specified in UN Security Council resolutions. On top of this, Israelis have occupied lands that are claimed by Palestinians. It's imperative to establish a Palestinian state with Jerusalem as its capital in order to reach a resolution to this problem. The core concerns and aspirations of the Palestinian people have consistently been disregarded. It's important to minimise civilian casualties and be aware of the grave consequences that could arise if the conflict escalates. Uh, And uh, Mike, in a comment directed at RTHK, says, Why do you insist on calling them Hamas militants? What I have seen is terrorism from terrorists. What kind of militant decapitates babies? stop it? Do you have to follow the mainstream media descriptions and news? Or can we start thinking for ourselves? Uh, now, Mike raises an interesting issue. Remind us any other media organisations, including the BBC in Britain, actually have come in under uh, some fire over precisely the same point of um, um, whether, whether you refer to Hamas as militants or terrorists. Shahram um uh, can you sort of shed a light on this this, this? this debate about whether um, ha- Hamas is actually called terrorist?
2: Well, are they a state player or the, the yeah, and of course, are they?
0: I mean, sometimes they're treated as because they rule Gaza as they are as basically as, as as basically a government there, and or or are they just a terrorist group? Uh, uh, Sharam sure. Akbar, are they? So first, I'm
3: going to pronounce my surname and make it easier. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Akbar Zadeh. Um, uh, we we'll just oh, call you okay. uh, Sharam. Go <laughs> forward. That's fine. Shahram is fine. Um, look, there is, uh, of course, uh, there. Hamas has engaged in acts of terrorism, and um, and Hamas is designated a terrorist organization by the U.S., uh, Australia, and many other countries. But the reality on the ground is that Hamas has been running Gaza for, uh, for the past two decades or so. Hmm. Um, and effectively, it has popular legitimacy in Gaza. So um, whether to call it a terrorist organization or a militant organization, it's, it's really a matter of uh, perspective. And um, we have to also recall that uh, ANC in South Africa was called a terrorist organization for its acts of violence. Uh, and, and then it was celebrated as a partner in peace mm-hmm. and came to office, um, same thing mm-hmm. with IRA. So, I mean, it is a question of perspective but it does. Uh, but it does point to a more fundamental issue that is, um, why are we in this situation? Your first, the first question from your listener, is raising a fundamental question: Why are we in this place in the first place? Um, what's happening with the question of Palestine? Um, why don't we have two separate states for Palestinians and Israelis to live together? I think that's a more fundamental question to ask than designating one group or other.
2: And is there a pathway? I mean, is there a pathway to get the Palestine state? Up
3: well, and at running? the moment, I don't believe there is. I think the days of a two-state solution uh, are long gone. The idea of a two-state solution was formed, um, you know, in 1990s and, and later on when uh, – there was a chance to create territorial, territorially significant areas for Palestinians and, and forming a state. Now with the settlement policies, with the um, cantonization of West Bank, um, it's almost impossible to create a, a Palestinian state. So I think that that um, horse has bolted, unfortunately.
0: How about the reaction <laughs> we're seeing in in parts of the Arab world? I mean, among uh, not governments in the Arab world, but among ordinary citizens, there you 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 see reports of of people people in Arab countries
3: rejoicing at what are these terrorist attacks? Absolutely, absolutely. Because again, put this in perspective, put it in context. For the past few decades. Uh, Arabs, Palestinians have been uh, at the receiving end of violence, occupation, and defeat, military defeat. And as I mentioned, everyone's just forgetting about Palestine and turning their attention away, and it was, and, and the international media was taking for granted that Israel has this system of occupation in place, and we're not going to do anything about it, let's just go elsewhere. Um, now, Hamas has raised the states of Palestine again on the international media. Attention is being paid, and they have caught the Israeli superior military off guard. Mm. So, of course, it's going to be celebrated because it's a matter of restoring pride uh, in an otherwise humiliated community.
0: Let's pick up on that point about catching the Israeli military off guard and maybe we'll go back to uh, Daniel, Daniel Marweki. I mean, what, what we're hearing in Israel says, says now is not the time when they're fighting a war to, to go over the, the mistakes which were made last weekend. But um, clearly there were horrendous mistakes, weren't there? I mean, you hear reports of, of um, um, Israelis who had to sort of hide for, for close to 24 hours before the army turned up. And Israel was a small place. I mean, and military jets that were just a few minutes minutes away and didn't turn up for hours and hours. I mean, once this is mm-hmm. over, presumably there is going to be some sort of huge reckoning in the state of Israel, Daniel Maweki.
1: I agree. Uh, I'll answer your question shortly. Just to go back to what my colleague said, uh, Sharam, I I agree that uh, Hamas put the Palestine question back on the agenda. They did so by, by extreme violence right, against civilians. And the reason why Hamas is able to, to play this card is because negotiations over two state solutions haven't worked, right? The PA, Fatah, they seem very weak because they've traded away the prospect of a Palestinian state for nothing, right? So Hamas is really the result also of a failed uh, peace process, of a failed Oslo process, right? Uh, so I just want to, to sort of like quickly refer back to that point. Then to your question, uh, yes, absolutely caught off guard. And I think the reason is that you have a very ideological far right government in Israel that is more preoccupied with uh, strengthening the settlements uh, in the West Bank than with guarding its borders of Gaza, right? So this is a direct result of the ideological uh, nature of the current. Uh, government. Hence why you now see a unity government, which will you know, surely help uh, in the war effort. But yeah, there will be a time of reckoning. And I would say that Netanyahu will go down as the worst uh, prime minister in Israeli history. And this is also, I think, a huge rebuke to well, you know, all sort of like far-right populist uh, <laughs> politicians in the West today, hmm. because this is a massive security failure. Netanyahu
0: has been in power for on and off, not continuously, but on, he's been in power now yeah. for how long? Um, I mean, he's, we know, <laughs> 20 years or something. He's been since he got to... Sorry?
1: Yeah. yeah, since the 1990s on and off. I mean, he was the, one of the original opponents of the Oslo process, and, you know, see where that got us.
0: So he's a survivor. Can he survive it? I mean, he survived. He survived the corruption inquiries and things like that. Um, can he survive this as well? Maybe.
1: Look, he's an excellent politician, and I don't mean that as a compliment. Right? So but he can survive this. Uh, I'm not sure. I think a lot of Israelis, people I talk to that are now sort of like moving to the, you know, the, the potential front line, they do this with huge anger at the government.
2: Hmm but there is a group in Israel who believe that it's 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 uh, never been a a successful plan to have a 2 state solution um and so there are there are also suggestions that some people are pretty you know kind of like this is a good moment to move forward and get rid of the question at all uh, completely so is is this where we're heading
1: uh potentially um I mean, yes, I agree the two-state solution is dead. It's been dead since the early 2000s, mm-hmm. right? The question is, what is the alternative? Uh, one-state solution? Hamas and Israel getting along? I don't see that. So I can't tell you how many states there should be. Just you know, to reiterate my, my prior point, there needs to be national self-determination for both sides, and there needs to be equality for both sides, and none of the two sides will go away
2: sure but is there is there a good understanding in israel that two states is the only solution or is there a, an aspiration here for uh, getting rid of the whole two state question uh,
1: the current government is absolutely opposed to the two state solution mm. obviously and they you know they had plans to annex large parts of the west bank and you know People like Ben Gvir, Smotrich—they—they they are very clear. They want to actually expel Palestinians, right? A repeat of forty-eight. So what we're looking at right now is, yeah, of course, the very opposite hmm. of you know the 90s spirit of the Oslo Accords.
2: So this is this is helpful—the fact that this happened to
1: helpful to them, right? Uh, look, I, I don't think this is helpful to Netanyahu uh, hmm. at all, not to his political career but for those who want a large scale escalation who are wishing for you know large scale war yes this is helpful so and, and 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 you know to an extent this is hamas and the extreme okay. right in israel are shaking
0: Okay, uh, we're, I was just going to take a break of news, new, for the news there, but we're discussing the horrific events in the Middle East um, on the back of that attack by Hamas at the weekend and Israel's response. Um, uh, we'll be continuing discussion after the news, and we're also later on going to be looking at a new survey on Hong Kong as well. If you have any thoughts on either topic, do email us at backchat at or you can uh, call us on 233-88266. Uh, 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 the weather forecast, uh, it's going to be sunny, with a maximum temperature rising to around uh, 29 degrees and indeed it's going to remain sunny over the next couple of days. Currently 25 degrees, relative humidity 74%. It's 9.30,
5: here's
0: Hayley with the news.
5: Diplomatic efforts appear to be gathering pace to find ways to get food and other aid into Gaza and provide safe passage out for some residents. Civilians have been under constant bombardment from Israeli airstrikes targeting the Hamas militant group for the past five days. Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives have nominated Steve Scalise to be the chamber's next speaker. The Louisiana lawmaker had a narrow win over Jim Jordan, who enjoyed the support of the party's right wing and NASA has revealed the first images of the largest asteroid sample ever brought back from space. Scientists at the Johnson Space Center said a quarter of the rock contained carbon and water, elements that are fundamental to life. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock.
6: Some construction workers are casual about safety, especially when jobs seem simple. If workers don't take enough safety measures for work above ground, such as doing simple work on a roof, a balcony or stairs, they could fall and get injured or even die. Employers and workers must follow occupational health and safety laws and take adequate safety measures, such as using working platforms and applying suitable fall prevention measures. Remember, taking work above ground lightly can put your life at risk. Many friends ask me why I'm so determined to do exercise for at least half an hour every day. Well, if you try it, you'll know why. It's all about sweating. Every time I exercise until I sweat, I seem to overflow with joy and strength, and I feel great for the rest of the day. Come on, start doing exercise with your family and friends. You can visit lcsd.gov.hk for details of its recreation and sports activities.
0: Welcome back to Back Chat. I'm Danny Giddings. Your guest presenter is Paul Zimmerman. Uh, the, uh, in the second half of the show, we're going to be dis- continue our discussion about the uh, terrible events in the Middle East, uh, following that uh, attack by um, Hamas over the weekend, which killed huge numbers of um, um, Israeli civilians, and now the um, response from Israel, initially bombing Gaza, but uh, clearly preparing for an invasion of Gaza as well. Uh, later on in the uh, program, we're going to be uh, talking to we're, uh, talking to uh, Vera Yoon from. Hong Kong U Business School about a couple of new surveys that suggest that uh, Hong Kong's wealth or average Hong Kong's is wealth is on, is on the decline. Uh, if you have any thoughts on either of these topics, uh, you can email us at backchat at or you can leave a message on our Facebook page, backchat on rthk radio free. Uh, our guests as we continue the discussion still with us, uh, James Dorsey uh, from uh, Nanyan Technological University, Daniel Marwaki from the University of Hong Kong and Sharam from uh, Deakin University in Australia. Uh, before we go back to our guests, let me just bring you uh, one more comment from a listener uh, kamran says uh, hamas is a response to 75 years of colonialism and occupation not to mention this year in 2023 alone has been the deadliest and bloodiest year for palestinians all due to endless raids on gaza refugee camps carried out by the israeli military killing everyone in their way including children gaza is the most concentrated piece of land in the entire world where do you expect them to go and not to mention the daily destroying of Palestinian villages and homes to make way for the continued expansion of illegal Israeli settlements, and the UN with the rest of the world is just watching the show. We stand on the rights of side of human rights, and I stand with Palestine. Uh, thank you very much, Cameron.
2: So, James, is this... Um this, this tone is, is coming up. So we go on one side to uh, Biden uh, uh, and, and others around the world calling uh, the Hamas uh, terrorists. And then we've got a sentiment around the world saying uh, that Israel just hasn't done enough and this has been really be pushing um, uh, Hamas and, and Palestine against the wall. So, or against this into the sea. Uh, is This this is, where's the end of this?
4: Let me answer your question by responding to, or adding to what some of uh, Some of it was said Hmm. before. The issue of labeling Hamas terrorist versus militant, I think one has to keep in mind that wars are fought physically, militarily on the ground and virtually publicly in information wars. And the debate of labeling is part of that information war. And I think we, independent media, independent analysts, as all of us are, are on the show, need to be aware aware of that and not fall into that trap. The second thing I would like to point out is that Hamas's position, when one cuts through the rhetoric, is not fundamentally opposed to negotiations with Israel. What it is fundamentally opposed to is the notion that the Palestinians, as has been the case in the past, would make concessions up front and then negotiate the terms of a deal. So if you go back to 1988, uh, Arafat, the, the leader of the Palestine Liberation Organization, recognized Israel, denounced terrorism in advance of the negotiations, and Hamas's argument is we're 30 years, uh, 30 years later, and that hasn't produced anything. If anything, it has worsened the situation. The yeah. third point I want to make, if I may, hmm. the longevity of the Netanyahu government um, or of Netanyahu as a as Prime Minister, the history in in Israel shows that no Israeli government has survived a major military conflagration longer than six months after the guns have fallen silent. So I think the real fallout of all of this we're only going to see uh, 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 later in the war. And the fourth t- point I'd like to make is. In the discussion about how you resolve the Palestinian issue, um, I think most analysts and certainly all, all of us on this show agree that a two-state solution has, ha- has passed its shelf life. And the question is, what then? One of the, one of the uh, options that is being discussed, not by the Israeli government, but in, uh, in other circles, is not a one-state solution, but a three-state solution. So, with other words, a confederation in which you would have an Israeli entity, and a Palestinian entity, and a Jordanian entity, um, and that would be one way of trying to resolve the demographic issue that is particularly uh, relevant to the Israelis.
2: So, is, so you think that that's going to be a potential for a, a, a new chapter in that ongoing saga in the Middle East—a debate about three it, states. It was-
4: It was something that was discussed in the 1970s and 1980s, and that discussion you're seeing revived now.
2: Hmm. Daniel, uh, do you agree? Do you think that this is um, a direction that can calm the situation and and, and potentially be a basis for a a longer-term solution, a slower pace of turning the pages of continuous war in the area?
1: To be very honest with you, we all agree that two decisions That we all agree, one state is a very academic idea at the moment. Perhaps then three states is the answer. But to be very honest, at this point, I think we are back at a at an existential nationalist war. And I want to stress that point. I think the war we're seeing right now is really, you know, and yeah, it's it's a really existential zero sum nationalist conflict, which is the, the worst kind of conflict to solve. Right. So I, I I would be careful right now with speculating about uh solutions, but I'm I'm obviously hope that my, my that James uh is right that this a direction could go in.
0: Let's explore a bit further the consequences of this existential war you're talking about. So um, Israel goes into, into Gaza. We, we, we can see that, right? I mean, they're yeah. pretty, pretty clear, right? They're massing troops. And um, although it's going to be very bloody, it's probably willing, uh, reasonable to assume that Israel will ultimately prevail, right? And if they want to wipe out Hamas, they can. They'll still have uh, uh, people attacking them, but they will occupy Gaza. And they are back basically where they were, was it, wasn't it was it 20 years ago? I mean, Israel made a strategic choice to uh, pull out of Gaza, right? They didn't want to be actually um, having to run Gaza, and they're, they're, they're back there again, and they'll be occupiers, and um, they'll mm-hmm. be facing years and years of conflict, won't they? Uh, the absolute, clock
1: absolutely. So as we all know, Israel is clearly militarily superior. So they are able to, of course, beat Hamas, uh, you know, in, in the longer term. Uh, But they have made this decision to keep Hamas in power and try to manage, quote unquote, the conflict, right? This decision has been overturned. A decision has been made to end Hamas. Uh, What that means is potential very long, long long-term warfare. And of course, drawing Israel into Gaza means that Hamas, even though they're militarily inferior, uh, do have a tactical advantage. Because, you know, as we've mentioned, no place is worse for a fight than a place such as Gaza.
0: And, and what happens because, I mean, maybe Israel, certainly some in Netanyahu's government would love to expel the Palestinian population from Gaza, but you can't, they, they, they have nowhere to go. Egypt wouldn't accept them, right? So you can't well, expel the residents. So you are then governing a very hostile Palestinian po- the sort of population who not just the militants, but the ordinary people celebrate these um, terrible attacks on Israeli civilians and take delight in them.
1: You're absolutely right. And also thanks for mentioning Egypt. We never mentioned Egypt. But Egypt is blocking the other part of the border, right? Mm-hmm. So there are discussions going on now, of course, to open the Rafah crossing for Palestinian refugees to find shelter in in Egypt. So I'm hoping that this is going to happen. Uh, but yeah, there's no way out. So you know, Israel can't live Hamas. It can't live with Hamas. They cannot end the conflict by ending Hamas. So we are—it's it's an impasse.
2: Akbar Zadeh, just to come back mm-hmm. to you. I mean, the, uh, we're, we're, let's look at it from an economic point of view. I mean, the, uh, what are the chances for Israel, if, if they would uh, take full control, to really raise living standards in the area and and with that pacify uh, the population?
3: Well, I think we have to go back to the original point. Israel had made a decision to withdraw from Gaza Strip because uh, the cost of re- re- remaining, retaining security control over Gaza was just too great. It was it was a cost analysis, uh, cost benefit analysis, and they've decided that uh, they much rather focus on the West Bank and protecting the um, settlements expansion in the West Bank. And um, leave Gaza to its own devices. Now, going back, if you're unwinding the clock and having full military occupation of Gaza, which me- puts Israel in total control, which means Israel has to provide food, um, everything to Gaza, mm-hmm. that's going to be a huge, huge undertaking. And I don't really think that the Israeli government is prepared, any Israeli government, uh would we'll be prepared to bear the costs so the, but uh, the,
2: they have their own uh gdp they got an economy that that is growing right now in in palestinia they got uh, what is it a four percent uh rebound uh, last year i mean there is there is there is an opportunity to grow the economy there or are we looking at a population that is you know get a young population so there is a potential for economic growth there
3: There is economic growth there, but the Palestinian territories are dependent on international aid mm-hmm. uh, from the United States, from the European Union. Um, without, if you cut off international aid, the Palestinian economy is not sufficient enough to provide for the people, for the population. So there is a high degree of dependence on international aid. Um, and... Israel would be responsible for everything um, if they choose to um, go down the path of full occupation.
0: James Dorsey, we haven't really talked about the effect of this conflict on international relations. Of course, the uh, Biden administration had been, uh, this is a, a great story in continuing this process, where various Arab governments basically break ranks with the Palestinians and uh, open um, diplomatic relations with Israel. And uh, the next target, which was clearly was getting quite close, was Saudi Arabia, which would be a huge coup. Um, but that is presumably dead now, isn't it?
4: Well, I don't think that it's dead. I think it's become a lot more complicated. And it links into the question that you asked earlier. I think that, uh, essentially, the, uh, as this progresses, uh, you're going to see pressure on the Israelis to restrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, if one looks at a pattern in the way the United States has handled Israel since the rise of the, uh, the Biden administration, it's been one in which, uh, To a degree, Biden has kept uh, Netanyahu at arm's length. He would not invite him to the White House. Uh, He met him for the first time nine months after coming, uh, after Netanyahu came to office in September at the UN General Assembly. And his messaging has been one which, on the surface, looks like full support for Israel. And there is real support for Israel. I don't question that. but there's also a much more subtle messaging. Uh, and you saw that, for example, in uh, Biden's last uh, statement publicly, in which he spoke about the rule of law warfare, which was a message to the Israelis. Uh, so the longer this conflict takes, uh, the more more difficult it is going to be, even for Israel's closest allies, not to counsel restraint.
0: Uh, the problem
4: for the Israelis the problem for the Israelis is that going into, as for any military force, going into Gaza is going to be easy. Getting out of Gaza is going to be a lot more difficult.
2: An expensive The notion,
4: The notion that economic uh, improvement is going to satisfy Palestinians has proven to be wrong. It's not. The Palestinians are looking for uh, recognition of their aspirations. And for the Israelis in Gaza, Gaza today is a much is a destroyed part of the world. And rebuilding that is going to be an immense undertaking in an, at, at, at immense cost. And that's not something the Israelis will want to shoulder. So in a lot of ways, they're going to be in a bind once the ground invasion begins, uh, and, cert- in, and, and certainly once it ends.
0: But is it going to end? I mean, once they're in, as you said, going in will be, I'm yeah, not sure so very easy, but going in can, can be done. But um, it's the getting out that will be difficult. They'll just be stuck there, won't they? I think they're going to be stuck
4: there. In much the same way, I think if you look at the evolution of the, of the occupation since 1967, initially they didn't want to stay. And we're now 56 years later. Uh, and we're 56 years later in part because... Uh, you know, uh, things are not static. They're dynamic. So Israeli attitudes towards the West Bank have changed over time. And um, I think I'm not saying that the uh, the Israelis will want to keep Gaza. But what I am saying is that the occupation or the invasion is going to take on a life of its own.
0: Mm. Okay, well, yeah, let's let in the uh, closing phase of this discussion, let's ask our guests to put their, their look into their crystal balls and tell us, I mean, we, we, we can see that it's going to be a very difficult time ahead, but um, uh, D- Daniel Mawaki, where, where are we going to be? In, where would you predict we'd be in 10 years? Will Israel still be in Gaza being attacked by um, militants or terrorists, what you want to call them, every day, or will some, uh, some sort of solution have presented itself?
1: Mm. First of all, we live in a... I think new chapter of world history where, where predictions are very hard to make. <laughs> and secondly, they're even harder to make in the Middle East, right? Things can change very quickly in the Middle East. So I think a lot of scenarios are on the table. None of them are looking particularly good, right? So from what I'm seeing right now, one scenario would be a renewed occupation of Gaza, Gaza long drawn-out warfare in Gaza. I think what Hamas wants, what Iran wants, what, is, what Isbollah wants is a large war on Israel to end Israel, to be honest. I think it's really that sort of like apocalyptic. And what we are hoping for, obviously, is a solution that can maintain the national rights of both peoples in however many states that are needed for that. Uh, On this last point, however, I think we are equally pessimistic at the moment.
0: Okay, well, let's give the uh, last word to uh, Shahram Akzadeh. What what does your crystal ball tell you?
3: Uh, I think I only have to echo uh, my colleague. uh, I'm very pessimistic about the prospects. um, But uh, I think we know that the solution lies in giving people Uh, dignity and respecting their rights to govern themselves and have autonomy. So uh, um, how we get there, uh, I really do not know. The Middle East is a very unpredictable place.
0: Okay, thank you very much. A slightly uh, gloomy note to. Paul, did you want to add something? No,
3: I mean, that is, I was going to
2: conclude to, to get it with you that this is a very gloomy note. Uh, and and you know, how, how can you resolve this and in, in a state? There is uh, so much economic dependency on everybody else. I mean, if, even if you give more independence to the state, economically, they're
0: so far away from independence. Well, uh, apologies to listeners for such a gloomy discussion. Right. It's the nature of the topic. Yes, sir, please do have a final word.
4: I just wanted to add one thing. This is a moment which is dominated by the worst of human fears. Anger, fear, despair. Uh, we are going to have to wait and see what the political fallout of all of this is. When once the emotions subside, and I think what you could see is potentially over time that this is a watershed and it's a watershed in which, uh, cooler heads prevail. But
0: that's
2: going to take time. Yeah, that's
0: well, so thank clear. you very much for that. at least we can end on a slightly more, more optimistic positive, note there well thank you very much indeed to our guests a very interesting discussion there uh, Shahram Akbar Zadeh who is from uh, the is convener of the Middle East uh, Studies Forum at Deakin University in Australia Daniel Marweki from uh, Department of Politics and Public Administration mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. University of Hong Kong and James Dorsey from the School of International Studies at Nanyan Technological University in Singapore you, stay with us
5: you're listening to Backchat. Call us on 23388 266 and have your
0: say. In the closing section of uh, this morning's program, we are going to move on to a couple of surveys from the, the two of Hong Kong's big banks seem to be competing to um, release information about uh, millionaires in Hong Kong. We've had surveys in the sort of just successive days from uh, Citibank and uh, HSBC. And what they, they, combining them together, what they seem to tell us is that, first of all, that, um, you can become a millionaire relatively young in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong's affluent tend to become millionaires by the time that they are 33. Uh, which is, I think, pretty young by international standards, isn't it?
2: But, but you're, you're already qualifying it, the affluent. So how many affluent are left? Uh,
0: however, if we look at recent trends, Hong Kong's affluent are not doing so well. Um, the typical Hong Kong, uh, this, is from the, uh, this is from the other survey, this is from Citibank survey, typical Hong Kong multimillionaire lost um, a million dollars in liquid assets this year as their net worth declined. Uh, and that um, overall, um, Hong Kong's affluent are, perhaps not surprisingly with what's going on right now, much more reluctant to put their, their money into, into the property market right now. They prefer to hold it in other forms of assets. Mm. Well, uh, joining us to, to see what we can make of uh, these, uh, these two surveys and what they tell us about the uh, state of Hong Kong's affluence. And here we're not talking about the super rich. We're talking about what you might call the upper middle class. Is uh, is regular Backchat guest uh, Vera Yoon, who's lecturer in economics at University of Hong Kong Business School. Uh, good morning, Miss Yoon. Welcome back to Backchat.
7: Good
0: morning. So, so what do you make of the, the, these results? That uh, uh, the, I guess the upper middle class are getting slightly poorer and they don't want to put their money in properties, perhaps the uh, best way to sum up these results?
7: Uh, I'm not sure whether they're upper middle class because one million in Hong Kong is really nothing. That's, that's not, not upper thing. middle class.
0: That's, Maybe that's not middle class. class. <laughs>
7: Um, I think for the property market, we can all see that it has reached its peak for, for a few years already. And then the potential to even go up higher, uh, it's limited. Like it has increased for multiple folds already in the past few decades. And then the baby boomers, they have reaped all the benefits. So um, there's more downside risk than an upside risk. So people would consider... Um, you know, renting a place or if they need the place, they will, they may want to buy it so that they can um, make it their home as they want to do all the uh, fabrication and renovation. But other than that, as an investment vehicle, it's not that attractive. The yield nowadays is like 2%. But if you buy um, U.S. Treasury bonds or 60 uh, forces, it's like 5%. So as an investment vehicle, it's not that attractive. And, and also for the young people, um, there are other concerns. Uh, one concern would be they may want to be more internationally mobile. And then property is a fixed asset that um, it has high transaction costs. You need to pay the lawyers and then the agents and there are many things. So it's not that liquid. Um, second, there are new investments like cryptocurrency and alternative investments, which uh, the young people, they would have more information about cryptocurrency than the baby boomers, which makes them having a better edge than the baby boomers in making a higher return in these markets. So other markets compared with the property market are more attractive at the moment for them.
2: So, though we have a, a group of people who now feel themselves rich because they see uh, the number, <laughs> they see something a lot of zeros. Thought? Yeah, um, it's it's not really true, isn't it? We have um, the Gini coefficient is uh, is is further out of whack. We have more people that are poorer. Uh, cost of living is up. Um, what is the contrast here? I mean, uh, are there p- are people feeling richer or are people feeling poorer?
7: Um, I think before the increase in the interest rate, as the U.S. did, um, the gap has been enlarged because people with assets, people with funds, they can easily find opportunities to, you know, just multiply the size of the asset, while the poor, I mean, they have no access to these investment opportunities. They don't even have savings, so they, they couldn't make these opportunities so yes i think the low Mm interest rate environment for like 20 years has enlarged that gap quickly and nowadays i would say um of course because the asset market internationally has become more advanced more connected the the, like the richest one like we're talking about like top one percent top all five percent of course they they're not a factor. They can always find different opportunities to invest. And the like, very, very top guys, they have earned much more in terms of wealth than the so-called upper middle and middle class. So, so that gap has been enlarged. I mean, this, I mean this has, like, we have talked about this for a long time. Thomas Piketty has uh, so talking about this. But I mean, Gini coefficient is another thing because it measures income. Like we are talking about wealth here.
0: Well, let's go back to the definition of the middle class, because I'm looking further. This HSBC survey. They suggest they think a middle class person in Hong Kong is now someone with an average of um, about $6 million in liquid assets. What, what's your What's your view, Vera Yoon?
6: Um,
7: I think it's more a perception problem. Um, there is a definition in terms of income, but like how do you draw the line uh i think there are many different kind of definition it's not that like easy but everyone can have some definition you know in hong kong one definition if you earn like twenty thousand per month you're already like middle class you're just lower middle but i mean middle class can be extended to somebody who earned three hundred thousand. they can still consider their middle class it, it's kind of a somehow it is more a self-perceived kind of concept, rather than just about the income, is like really wide. So it it, it really depends.
2: So, but how would you um, uh, characterize the current situation? Um, uh, You know, what has happened over the last five years for people in Hong Kong in the, what you call the upper class, the middle class and the lower class? I mean, how have things changed economically?
7: Well, I think in the COVID, the lower class, the grassroots, like they were in the service industry, so they were hit the hardest. But nowadays, because they're in short of labor, so they could have better, like in the short term, they have better bargaining power and can earn higher salary. There's just not enough labor in the market. And for middle class, uh, they were not affected that much during the COVID. I think in the long run, because the economy, like, is like kind of having a gloomy outlook, and like internationally. So, um, but like they fare well. Like, I think they're still fine nowadays. But later on, there may be more laid off, and there will be lower headcounts. It has been countered by, you know, people emigrating, you know, expatriate leaving. But once that then still, I mean, middle class would have a um, crisis in whether they can preserve their original position in the social hierarchy. So I think like both may not fare well. And then they are saying that they would um, import labor from mainland China because there are not enough people um, that work in the service sector that work in many grassroots jobs and that would also lower their bargaining power in the market but and then hong kong is already um good in the sense that we don't have very high inflation like in europe uh you know in the uk etc Okay.
0: I'm sorry, Vera Yoon, It's very interesting, but we are coming up to the news, so I'll have to draw it to a close there and say thank you very much to uh, Vera Yoon, who's lecturer in economics at Hong Kong U Business School, who's talking about these two recent wealth surveys. And, of course, thank you very much uh, to my co-host, Paul Zimmerman, this morning. Um, uh, tomorrow it will be Andrew Work and Carl Ha. So uh, do join us again for Back Chat to tomorrow. But that's it for today.
5: HK. The News at 10 with Haley Yip. Diplomatic efforts appear to be gathering pace to find ways to get food and other aid into Gaza and provide safe passage out for some residents. The U.S. says it's having active discussions with Israel to help